Go ahead, Chair. Welcome to the October 26, 2023 meeting of the Human Rights Commission. I'm Commission Chair Karen Clopton. The door opened, so I was just looking at that. Okay. I want to thank our San Francisco Human Rights Commission staff, Jessica Campos and Anjanette Coates, for providing technical assistance with this evening's meeting. Now I would like to open tonight's meeting with the Ramatush Ohlone land acknowledgement. Commissioner Duran. Thank you, Madam Chair. We acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush community, and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. I hope. Thank you. Secretary McKnight, do we have any announcements? This evening's meeting is being held at San Francisco City Hall when Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place in room 416. Members of the public can join us in person or participate remotely. Public comment will be available on each item on this agenda. Each speaker will be allowed two minutes to speak. People attending in person will be called on to speak first, followed by those attending remotely please use the raise hand icon to indicate you would like to participate in public comment. Please call uh, the roll. Item one called order and roll call of commissioners. As I call your name, please affirm attendance by saying aye. Chair Karen Clopton. Aye. Vice Chair Ann Champion Shaw. Aye. Commissioner Rodrigo Duran. Aye. Commissioner Asib Emron. Aye. Commissioner Mark Kelleher. Commissioner Jason Johnson. Aye. Commissioner Jason Pellegrini. Commissioner Leah Pimentel. Commissioner Michael Sweet. Commissioner Irene Yee Riley. Chair, we have quorum and the meeting can be called to order. Okay, the meeting is now called to order. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Uh, the commissioners present will remain to hear and discuss the presentations and take public comment. Um, quorum has been met. So good evening, everyone. This evening, we honor two fundamental causes of human rights in this country and globally. We spotlight Domestic Violence Awareness Month and National Disability Employment Awareness Month. I would like to also recognize that this year marks the 50th anniversary of the Rehabilitation Act, a federal law prohibiting discrimination against people with disabilities. 
We are glad to be joined by representatives from the city and county of San Francisco representing uh, both of these human rights issues. And we look forward to hearing about their work to make San Francisco more equitable, more safe, and more diligent in its prosecution of those who violate the rights and well being of others. We also look forward to learning how we can amplify the work that you are doing. And with that, I'd like to open general public comment. Item two, general public comment. Members of the public may address the commission on matters that are within the commission's jurisdiction and are not on today's agenda. This is a discussion item. Are there any members of the public attending in person who would like to comment on this item? People attending in person are invited to make public comment. Public comment is up to two minutes. Please state your name if you like your name to be reported in the minutes. Chair, I see no persons attending in person who wish to make comment on this item. Are there any members of the public who would like to provide testimony remotely? Please use the raised hand icon. Members of the public attending remotely, use the raised hand icon to let us know you would like to make comment. Chair, I see no persons of the attending remotely who wish to comment on this item. Seeing none, public testimony is now closed. Please call the next item. Item three, adoption of September 14th, 2023 meeting minutes. Review and anticipate adoption of the minutes from the commissioner's September 14th, 2023 meeting minutes. Commissioners will be presented with reports for acceptance from September 28th and October 12th, 2023 presentation and discussions. This is a discussion and action item. There will be public comment. Did I lose you? A little bit. Okay. okay. So we're not going to take up all three at the same time. Uh, we'll adopt I thought them. that was clear. So yeah. uh, the first thing that we'll be looking at are the minutes from the commission meeting um, of September 14th. And they were distributed electronically. So all the commissioners have reviewed and they were distributed to the public as well. Um, the meeting video for the September 14th meeting is available on the Human Rights Commission website and transcription is available upon request of the commission secretary. In addition, there are reports from the presentation and discussions held on September 28th and October 12th that have also been distributed to the commissioners and are available to the public. Now we will open public comment on these three items, really. Are there any members of the public attending in person who would like to comment on the minutes and the reports? People attending in person are invited to make public comment. Public comment is up to two minutes. Please state your name if you'd like your name recorded in the minutes. 
Chair, I see no persons attending in person who wish to make comment on this item. Are there any members of the public who would like to provide testimony remotely? Please use the raised hand icon. People attending remotely are invited to make public comment. Public comment is up to two minutes. Chair, I see no persons in the public attending remotely who wish to make comment on this item. Seeing none, public testimony is now closed. Commissioners, do you have any edits to the minutes of the for the September 14th, 2023 commission meeting? If not, is there a motion to adopt the September 14th, 2023 commission meeting minutes as submitted? So moved. Is there a second? Second. It's been moved and seconded. Is there any objection? Seeing no objection by unanimous consent, the meeting minutes of September 14th, 2023 have been approved as submitted. Regarding the reports on the September 28th, and October 12th presentations and discussions. Are there any comments or additions to the reports by any commissioners? Hearing none, then we accept the reports as submitted. Please call the next item. Item four, vote on commission support for African-American Reparations Advisory Committee final report recommendations 2023-2024. Commissioners will discuss and vote on a proposed motion from September 14th, 2023 meeting. That proposal is, the motion is, the Human Rights Commission fully endorses the African-American Reparations Committee report and recommendations and adds the names of the commissioners to the report in support. This is a discussion action item. There will be public comment. The work and report of the African-American Reparations Advisory Committee is essential to our city's work to heal injustices of the past and develop a path towards a future free of bias, which as we all know, continues <laughs> to support and encourage bias and racism in this city and across the country today. This is a recipe for hope grounded in an investment in the African-American community, which of course benefits the greater San Francisco community. And today we as a commission will ratify the vote that was taken on September the 14th to show our support for the work to carry on in the years ahead as outlined by the report uh, as we move toward implementation. I will call for a vote, which is really a ratification vote, uh, following public comment and any discussion by the commissioners on the motion that was that was discussed and submitted uh, during the September 14th, 2023 meeting. We now open the floor to public comment. People attending in person are invited to make public comment. Public comment is up to two minutes. Please state your name if you'd like your name to be recorded in the minutes. Are there any members of the public attending in person who wish to make comment on this item? 
chair i did not see anyone attending in person who would like to make comment on this item are there any members of the public who would like to provide testimony remotely please use the raised hand icon people attending remotely are invited to make public comment public comment is up two minutes chair i see no persons attending remotely who wish to make comment on this item seeing none public testimony on this item is closed commissioners the motion is on the floor for your vote do you have any is there any discussion do you need it restated seeing none is there a motion i so move second it's been moved and seconded is there any objection to the ratification of the september 14th motion seeing none it's unanimously accepted okay so that's been passed unanimously please call the next item item five item five domestic violence awareness month presentation by sharp office of sexual harassment and assault response and prevention on their work to address gender-based violence and value of remembering persons who suffer in silence during domestic violence awareness month this is a discussion of possible action item, and there will be public comment. Okay. Good evening, commissioners. Good, e good evening, Madam Chair. Uh, my name is Kelly Lou Densmore. I'm the director of the Office of SHARP, and I'm here with my colleague. Hello. Can we use that one too? No. I, well, you know what? Sure. I take that back. I take that back. I just hadn't done it before. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Good evening. My name is Dulce Garcia. I am the policy director for the office of, for the office of Sharp. So some of you know us well, and others are newer to our work. But um, we are the gender-based violence prevention division at the Human Rights Commission. And next slide, please. Just a little bit about us to refresh your memories or to learn who we are. Um, our mission is the the Office of Sharp is uh, the Office of Sharp is the gender-based violence prevention division of the San Francisco Human Rights Commission. We work to ensure that survivors are believed, responded to, and treated with dignity by city government when voicing their experience of sexual violence. We advocate within city government for survivors, and we work with community to transform and create new systems. Uh, excuse me, new system approaches to address and end sexual violence. It's our vision that we will be in a San Francisco with no incidents of sexual assault or harassment, but should it occur, we envision a city with a variety of accessible options that a survivor can choose from to address their harm and healing process, each approach working to end the immediate violence as well as the conditions in which it was able to occur. And next slide, please. So um, SHARP does work in three, we call it our three pillars. So we do advocacy, policy, and prevention. And um, through our advocacy program, we receive complaints from survivors who have gone through a city, or they've experienced harm, and then they've gone to a city agency for support and have had a negative experience or felt disbelieved or not treated well or, or faced a barrier. 
Um, and through all of our work, we continue to find the most of our complaints coming um, regarding housing, safe housing for survivors, or um, for safe schools and support for youth. So that and those two areas have become um, our policy priorities um, throughout the past year and are also taking us into 2024. Next slide, please. So currently we're working on safe housing for survivors of sexual assault and gender-based violence. Um, for the past year and a half, we have been part of the safe housing working group. In March of this year, we hosted a convening with city agencies, community-based organizations, um, with frontline providers, um, with survivors themselves as well. And within this convening in March, we prioritized the recommendations that came from information gathered through community needs assessment, a strategy-focused quantitative data analysis, um, and the safe housing convening that I talked about in March. And uh, we prioritized the recommendations that were set forth. And now we have three subcommittees um, that meet on a monthly basis. So subcommittee one is focused on system-wide or also known as recommendations one through nine. Uh, <laughs> subcommittee two is our access points. So where survivors are able to um, get to these access points that then get them into the pipeline of city housing, uh, which are recommendations 10 through 15 and 25 and 26. And then subcommittee three is shelter and housing, which focuses on the recommendations 16 to 20, 24. And through these subcommittees, um, our focus is in thinking about planning and implementations of these recommendations. Um, we are also very excited as well to be partnering with Project Survive um, at City College. It is a women's and gender studies class where um, students are learning how to, learning about sexual violence and gender-based violence so that they can be peer educators and sexual health educators. And they are interviewing with us. Um, they do about 15 hours for the semester and they are doing research on housing with us so that we can host another convening, um, hopefully in the spring of next year. So we're very excited about the work that continues to be done um, to make sure that survivors are accessing housing in the city of San Francisco. Next slide, please. We've also have been um, keeping a pulse on how youth feel safe in San Francisco Unified School District. Um, the last time we were here and presented to you all, we talked about how students, you know, had walkouts and they were really, you know, demanding that they want to feel safer at their schools and not only in their schools, but on their way to, to campus, right? Um, and so we have been partnering with the Youth Commission um, commissioners, Youth Commissioners, and we will be hosting a self-defense training for youth ages 12 to 24. Uh, we are partnering with Navarro, Navarro Martial Arts Academy. Um, and the focus of the self-defense training is, is not just, um, it's going to be a hands-on um, self-defense class, but it really it's about um, how do we show up for each other as well, right, as a community. So if youth are hanging out at the local liquor store right after school, how is the liquor store owner also involved in the safety of youth? Right, so it's definitely going to be a hands-on um, workshop. Um, so once we have it, you know, the flyer done, we hope that you can share it with the youth um, that you are connected to. Next slide, please. 
The other thing that we are excited to be working on is we are partnering with Love Never Fails, um, Black Women Revolt. Both of those are grantees through HRC um, and also continuing to work with the youth commissioners on a, an event for Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month, which is February. And um, while that month has been around, it's been an awareness month for a while, this will be the first year that SHARP um, is doing an event specifically around teen dating violence. Um, and we're excited to have a number of speakers to discuss healthy relationships, um, to talk about safety planning. Um, hopefully we'll have a number of resource tables, art activities, and some kind of um, spoken word or performance as well. Um, and this is just to bring awareness that approximately um, one in three young people find themselves in an, an abusive or an unhealthy relationship throughout their youth. Um, and, and within that, about one in 12 experience physical dating violence and one in 12 experience sexual dating violence. And these are statistics from the CDC. Um, and so we're hoping to um, provide community and a place for empowerment and um, skills for relationships for our young people. Next month, or month, next slide, please. <laughs> um, and as since we are here today, we are honoring um, and recognizing Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And there's been a whole long lineup of events this year that have, since we're at the end of the month, unfortunately they've passed now, but it's been really exciting to see, especially with um, COVID safety practices being lesser these days is all the galas that happen this month through the different great and strong organizations in our community. And then some that I just wanted to highlight this past Tuesday, two days ago, um, the Domestic Violence Consortium held their annual event on the steps of City Hall, uh, where they light up the, the building with purple. So that is still, those lights will be on this evening as we leave. So just to recognize and honor that that's the, the, the City Hall is purple um, in honor of domestic violence awareness. And then coming up, not this Friday, but the following Friday, if any of you are interested, uh, we will be uh, participating in the San Francisco Collaborative Against Human Trafficking's annual conference. And there's gonna be, I think five of us, five of us from HRC who will be attending this year. Um, and we're happy to share information with any of you who might be interested in coming as well. Um, and then the last thing that I wanted to just raise up um, for Domestic Violence Awareness Month is Black Women Revolt's um, public service campaign that they just launched. And they also held a press conference and a rally on the steps of City Hall, but it's called Reach Out to Get Out. Um, and it is a campaign to address domestic violence and in particular homicides within Black and Brown communities in the Bay Area. And unfortunately, we've seen um, a rise in the last handful of months. So the rally was to name the people who um, our community has lost and also to bring extra light to this area uh, since we're seeing more violence right now. Um, we also have our gender-based violence prevention collective. Um, uh, our collective is a group of organizations and advocates from across San Francisco focused on collaborating to end the cycle of sexual violence and trauma in our city. We deeply value the education, relationships, and community and intergenerational knowledge that exists in this collective. And therefore, we center the voices of those most affected by uplifting their, 
ex their expertise and solutions as change maker. Um, the collective does this, does this work by prioritizing healing centered events, sharing best practices, creating policy and using a transformative justice model. For this month, we partnered with CROC, which is a cooperative uh, restraining order clinic that is housed at the women's building. And we held a training on what are the services that CROC offers um, to learn about you know, the different types of um, restraining orders that exist and how they work and how they protect survivors of domestic violence. Um, and it was a great, it was a great presentation that we had this Monday, just because many of the organizations that we partner with are frontline um, staff um, who are dealing with survivors directly. Um, so it's great to be able to partner with CROC and Black Women Revolt as well, who are partnering together to do um, trainings on Marcy's Law as well. And so for us, it's important to have these monthly meetings because it allows us to keep a pulse on what's happening in the community, what are the barriers and challenges that survivors are facing. Um, and we're hearing it directly from the organizations that are serving them. Um, so the Gender-Based Violence Prevention Collective meets monthly on the fourth Monday of every month. Um, and actually next month is our last one because we take December off for the holidays. So we welcome you um, to attend if you're interested in, in knowing what else is going on with our collective. Next slide. And another way that we're partnering with city agencies is we are partnering with HSH and DOSW to update the resource list that exists online. Um, in during the pandemic, there was a um, domestic and family violence resource page created, but it hasn't been updated since 2020. And so some of those resources are outdated. So currently we um, have sent out a survey to city agencies and CBOs to update their information so that it's up to date and accessible to um, survivors of gender-based violence, um, not only around domestic violence and family violence, but also sexual violence. Next slide, please. Oh, and before I talk about our grantees, um, I just want to lift up the, all the responses that we're getting in that survey that I'm, our, both of us have been feeling really proud of our, the organizations in San Francisco and the way that they've maneuvered and survived through COVID. And um, we get to like see what they were offering in 2020 and now what is being offered now and how robust and um, and strong that they are in the ways that they're coming back together and being more public, being able to be more public facing again. Um, so that's a, a positive, you know, it's like a positive thing to hold on to. Our communities are staying strong. Um, and the final thing that Dulce and I have been working on a lot lately is, um, and I know that is important to this commission because you've seen um, RFP 85, um, come into existence, but it's the LGBTQI and various communities grant. And we are happy to be distributing $5 million to the LGBT community. And we uh, are, Dulce and I manage 10 of the 13 grants that are going out this year. Um, and these are some of the grantees that, um, that we get to work with directly. And again, it's been really inspiring and exciting to read all of their, um, the scope of work and their grant plans and just to see what everyone has in store to use, how they're gonna use this money to better our, our communities. I believe that's the last slide. So we're available for questions and comments now. 
Thank you so much. And it's always great to see you in person. And um, it's such an important topic, right? Because domestic violence can be a silent killer. Um, this issue revolves around abusive partners, um, as well as people who may be unable to escape uh, their situation, their environment. And um, no matter how threatening because of social, economic, or other reasons. And we can't judge people because we don't know necessarily how we would react uh, to that. Um, as a survivor, I can say that we can't, we don't know what we're gonna do. Um, nationally, we do know that less than half of attacks in our homes are reported. So that's not a, that's not a good statistic. Um, and we really appreciate you coming. And with that, we'll open up to public comment and then the commissioners will. People attending in person are invited to make public comment. Public comment is up to two minutes. Please state your name if you'd like your name to be reported in the minutes. Are there any members of the public who would like to, in person who'd like to make public comment? Chair, I see no persons attending in person who wish to make comment on this item. Is there anyone who would like to make comment or give testimony remotely? Please use the raised hand icon. People attending remotely are invited to make public comment. Public comment is up to two minutes. Chair, I see no persons attending remotely who wish to make comment on this item. Seeing none, public comment is closed on this item. Commissioners, do you have any questions or concerns or thoughts for uh, our Office of SHARP? Vice Chair Shaw. Thank you so much, Chair. Thank you so much, SHARP, for the work, the wonderful work that you're doing in the community, as Chair noted, is very um, instrumental. Um, and, and the city of San Francisco is blessed to have your department um, and, and just um, how so many, both men and women, unfortunately, um, are victims of sexual violence. And to know that you're there to offer support is incredible. So what great work that you do. Um, as you were giving your presentation, I was really, really um, um, intrigued to know more about that Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month. I, I knew about the other organizations, but that one really um, struck a plug in me. And I'm excited about it. I'm so glad that, um, that we bring awareness to the public because we know this does happen and it has happened, we know, um, for years. And so I think you said one out of three. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Um, and so I, I was just wondering, because that's coming up, I know, in February, um, and you may have touched on, I may have missed it, um, as far as with the Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month, as far as schools, you know, as far as making, you know, your presence in schools, I don't know, giving some kind of seminar workshop, um, 
some kind of networking system with the counselors there at school. So um, if it, unfortunately, if it does happen, as sharp as they on hand to offer that supporting counseling, you know, to, to the survivors of that, like, like, what does that look like? What's on the, you know, circumference? Yeah. For I mean, I really want to elevate the work of our community partners that mm -hmm. are part of our gender-based violence prevention mm -hmm. collective, such as San Francisco Women Against Rape, um, and Project Survive, Project, the, in, the, health educators that go through Project Survive are the ones that go in into high schools okay. and do healthy relationship workshops, awesome. do um, support uh, bystander intervention workshops, mm -hmm. do supporting survivors workshops. And so mm -hmm. um, we know that it's most beneficial when it's peer-to-peer, -peer, meaning closer in age. So mm -hmm. as wow. much as I love doing those workshops, you know, as a 40-year-old, they might not pay attention to me anymore. <laughs> Um, but they will pay attention to folks who are recent graduates and 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 part of their communities. And so, you know, part of the work that we're doing in Project Survive is that we know that what they're doing works. And so um, we also know that they don't always have the funds or resources to be able to continue that work. And so we're partnering with them to be able to not reinvent the wheel, but mm -hmm. think smart, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the high schools also have uh, wellness centers mm -hmm. where youth can go access services and counseling. Um, and for example, San Francisco Women Against Rape, um, they are not mandated reporters. So what that means is um, their staff and counselors, when they're on campus, they are because you're touching school grounds, but a youth can come to the women's building um, to visit SF4 or can call the hotline and don't have to worry about um, mandated reporting, they can access the services and they are survivor-centered, meaning that the youth can say, I'm looking for this, or this is a type of support, or even just say what is available to me and not worry that they're gonna contact their parents or the police mm -hmm. and report what's happening to them. So that's a great benefit for youth. That's great. Dr. Davis. I just wanna just add to that in the sense that the the outreach and engagement team has school groups that they participate in that are dealing with um, the requests from both students and from um, the administration and faculty for them to be there. We've been called in on several occasions. And I, I just also wanna say much like the work that black women um, revolt against domestic violence, there are some, some issues and challenges that happen within communities of color in terms of like trust and being able to build on some of that. And so we've been really intentional about um, the affinity groups and things of that nature. And, you know, a conversation that I've had over the years, both with the school district and in community is that um, the wellness centers uh, also, not everyone feels comfortable going to wellness centers and um, much like the idea notion of mandated reporting, we've had young people who go there to get help and then end up with CPS at the, the homes. And so there's some discomfort in terms of engaging some of the wellness centers. So we do continue to try and build um, those relationships. You all may remember Veronica Garcia when she was with us and we were doing school groups. It was actually through the work that she was doing at one specific school that we were able to help um, the school addressed some issues that had come up that they had not been willing to publicly deal with. So we will continue through our outreach engagement, but those are based on relationships. Mm -hmm. And so it's not 
you can't go cold into schools and do some of that. So most of those are things where we have been asked in or that we have relationships and partnerships that we build on. So, but that happens with our um, outreach and engagement and our youth development teams. That's great, thank you. Commissioner Imran. Uh, thank you, uh, Madam Chair. I want to thank you both uh, for your presentation. The physical and emotional scars of domestic violence can cast a long shadow to many individuals faced with pain and fear of domestic violence. So during this National Domestic Violence Awareness Month, we shine a light on this violation of a basic human right to be free from violence and abuse. Pledge to ensure every victim of domestic violence knows they are not alone and foster supportive communities to help survivors seek justice and enjoy full and happy and healthy lives. All people deserve to be safe with loved ones and we must support survivors healing and we must ensure that survivors and their families have access to the resources and support they need to do so. I'm saddened to hear that in our neighboring San Mateo County, there've been five homicides this year and all five have been a result of domestic violence. So we, we gotta do better. Um, and so, so I'm also glad you're here to shine some awareness on that. Goes back to the point you made about housing. I believe that housing is a, is key to a safe exit from an abusive relationship and onto a better life. So victims can be able to separate themselves from their abuser and also the children if they have any. Um, so there's a need for domestic violence victims to get swift access to transitional housing. What more should the city do to increase access to housing for domestic violence victims? Are there shelters available? How long can you stay in a shelter? And then also the transition out. And we all know how, how much it costs to have housing in the city. It's just not only rent, it's a security deposit, it's a background check. So what more can, can we all do? And if you can speak to that a little bit. Um, I mean, that's that's the whole work of the Safe Housing Working Group, right? Is that we have these um, recommendations um, because we know that the barriers and challenges that survivors are facing are, are very unique. Um, we've noticed that a lot of the complaints that we get around housing, there's an overlap around fleeing violence, specifically domestic and sexual violence. And, you know, when we're talking about domestic violence, I know that many folks now are in on romantic partnerships, but here in San Francisco, as we know, many people have to live in households where they have roommates and, you know, intimate partner violence or domestic violence also occurs in those situations where it's not romantic and it's roommate to roommate. Um, so the way that you know, programs work and how they define survivor victim really does also um, impact the type of services that they're able to access. Um, to be honest, the shelters in San Francisco, there's not enough room. You know, there, there's just not enough room. Oftentimes people would not, don't go to the shelters because um, they're limited, right? They may, they might be a family and they might have a, a child that is aged out of what they can access. Mm -hmm. um, and so sometimes they have a curfew and people don't, people have jobs. And so they can't go to the shelter um, because they have an evening job, right? And so there's a lot of um, policies sometimes that are in place that have that I have just been grandfathered in and just, you know, it's nobody's fault, um, but that need to be updated and changed. And so I think the work that the, the Safe Housing Working Group is doing specifically the subcommittee around shelter and housing is so so important because it is about changing these uh, policies, planning and implementation of the recommendations that have been met, made. And what is so key about that work is that these subcommittees 50% or more are survivors. 
So we have survivors in there of multiple languages. Our hours are about, our, our subcommittee meetings are about two hours long just because of the multiple languages and translations that have to occur. Um, but it just goes to show how it's making it accessible to people who need to be in the front line of this work, the people who have gone through the system and the system has failed them. And so they're the ones doing the recommendations. They're the ones saying, this is how you make the implementation so that we can actually be safe, right? Um, an example that I'll give of a, of a complaint that we had is we had someone who wanted to be transferred out of um, their housing unit and they wanted to be transferred out of the tenderloin because their abuser lived in the same area. Um, and this survivor got transferred over literally two blocks away mm. from the tenderloin. Um, technically, it's not the tenderloin anymore, um, but it's two blocks away, right? Um, and it just goes to show again, like most of housing is very concentrated in a very specific part of the city. And so the implementation that is happening is like, how do we distribute the housing throughout San Francisco to create safety, even if just in distance? Um, so I'm really proud of the work that is happening because it really is centering um, the voices and needs of survivors. Yes, yes. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Um, thank you for that response. There was a story that came to light. Um, there was a husband and wife. The husband was a United States citizen and the wife was an immigrant. And he used that against her, like in their relationship, and it became very violent. And her fear was not wanting to go to the police in fear of her, her immigration status and the fear of being deported. So can you explain why it's important to ensure that immigrants also get access to domestic violence services and legal assistance if they're looking for it and also making sure that they, they come to you uh, and it's a safe space? Yeah, this is a great question. This is where organizations such as CROC and San Francisco Women Against Rape and Women Inc. and Casa de las Madres and Asian Women Shelter is so important because um, survivors who are undocumented can actually access a U visa if they report the crime that they are experiencing. And that's often knowledge that is not known to them, information that is not known to them, and they're afraid. Um, and so that's why I love the work that our community organizations are doing because in centering survivors and their needs they're also saying these are your options what is the best option for you right now right and so that might be not reporting and waiting two weeks because maybe they have you know an immigration trial coming up and they need to focus their energy on that and say hey as soon as I know what my status is I will come back to your organization and take up the counseling and take up the healing workshops and you know so people get to prioritize what's important to them in that moment. Um, but yeah, survivors who are undocumented are often afraid because of their status and you know, don't know that they can access a new visa in, in the process of, of getting the support that they need. Thank you. Thank and you. it is a real barrier that you have to report the crime to be able to get the U visa. We've seen, or we know of survivors who um, don't want to, for whatever, you know, multiple reasons, don't want to report what's going on at home, but are also looking for that, the immigration security. And so we realize that it's beneficial, but also there are barrier, barriers and challenges with that as well. Thank you for your, for your response and that, that very helpful information. My very last question would be, I also think about the children when it comes to this, uh, when you have domestic violence, the children who suffer as well, and you're going through these custody, custody battles and there's arrange, arrangements between the, the mother and father, whether, you know, they may be, not be involved romantically anymore, but they do have to co-parent. So 
that victim has to see the abuser, even if, if it's between um, some type of arrangement when they drop off the kid, right, uh, for the weekends or, or vice versa. So how are we making sure that our children are also being protected and they're connected to the services you're providing as well? Big question. Um, honestly, I think this is where our partnership with Croc is so important because restraining others vary, the different type of restraining others vary of how they protect survivors and, ch and specifically children if they are choosing to go through the criminal system. Um, and so, the you know, when we, when survivors reach out to all these nonprofits and community-based organizations that serve them directly first, um, they always offer a safety plan. And so a safety plan takes into account who is in the household. So that can be children, right? That can be, I live with five roommates and I have a you know, dog that is my emotional support animal. And so that is taken into consideration into a safety plan. And safety plans are usually made for 24 to 48 hours first, just in the moment when it's crisis and then when they're able to access services in the agency they're usually done for two weeks at a time um and then longer the more that they are um creating a network of support for themselves and so when it comes to children that's always a big thing that comes into mind um and you know again survivors are the experts of their lives and sometimes staying in the home is the safest option in that moment um, instead of fleeing. Um, and so oftentimes it's because it's children are in the picture. And so again, it's as um, Chair Clapton, you know, shared with us, it's, it's people don't leave for so many reasons um, and we never judge them. We always say you're the expert of your life and you know what's best for you. And if staying home tonight is what's safest, I trust your decision. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. Commissioner Johnson. Can I say one? I'm sorry to interrupt. Can I add one more thing? Just if um, you would like to see the recommendations for the working housing group um, that Dulce shared about, it's on the um, HSH website, and we can give John, the commission secretary a link for you all if you would like that. That would be great. We'd yeah. appreciate that. Thank um, you. Continue. Your question. Commissioner yeah. Johnson. Thank you for the wonderful presentation and thank you for all the awareness and hard work you're doing. And I um, wanna sort of build off of the conversation we started earlier around the great program that, programming that you're doing for youth um, because I, I was just really inspired by that because for me, and maybe I'm making assumptions here, that sort of gets to um, educating and bringing awareness early. So in, in hopes of preventing it from happening, you know, either at that moment or later on in their lives. Um, I'm curious, with that work with youth, are you doing uh, gender-specific programming? So meaning, are you bringing young boys together to have conversations? Because again, around opening up and trust, um, I imagine there's probably um, some comfort that could be had in sort of single-gender or same-gendered um, gatherings um, or specific targeted programming for, um, for specific gender youth. We haven't done anything that's gender specific, but a panel that we are hoping to have for Sexual Assault Awareness Month is toxic masculinity and sexual violence. <laughs> so I think would speak to what you're you're saying. Um, the challenge with prevention, I think, is that, it, that there isn't a program that is taking San Francisco Unified School students from K to twelve. 
right? Oftentimes prevention starts in high school and it's a little late for that. Um, we talk about bystander intervention to students when they're in kinder by saying, you know, keep your hands to yourself or, you know, he looks like he's upset, you know, like awareness. And so um, we, when we talk about consent, it's really about body autonomy, which is what we teach kindergartners. And that language can actually follow a student throughout um, their, you know, schooling. And that's one of the things that we're hoping to really like do around the work that we're doing with youth is really seeing like how can we um, create a universal curriculum in San Francisco um, that targets a student from the moment they enter to the moment they graduate from high school that is really about consent and body autonomy um, and, and showing up for each other as bystanders. Thank you. And also what hopefully hit on the topics that you're bringing up around if you're experiencing violence in the home that's from your parents or there's ways to uh, to talk about um safety and body autonomy and consent um at an age appropriate level throughout um adolescence and i also know that the organizations that are part of our gender-based violence prevention collective are doing um gender-based specific prevention, um, racial ethnic specific groups, support groups, as well as like LGBT. So they they recognize that like certain communities have certain needs. And so they are they are the ones that are doing that frontline work and they have very specific um, support groups and programming for them. So we elevate that work. And, and I would just suggest again, and I wanna make sure Jessica I know is on the call, just so we coordinate with them because some of this work um, as you all know, the MBSK work, the My Brother and Sisters Keeper Initiative work does do gender specific because that's the intention of that work. Um, it's a lot of work within the schools and um, the Dream Keeper Fellowship has been doing a lot of work with violence prevention and public safety. And um, so again, I think we just gotta do a better job of connecting the dots, but a lot of that work already exists in the, in the work that um, the youth development team is doing. As you know, we do the, the literacy, we do the workshops, we do all of that, but a lot of the, you know, the we've had some instances, specifically we have a book called Julian is a Mermaid, where um, people, when we gave them the books, the families reacted and got upset with their children for having the books and brought the books back. And so we've had to do some things um, in community in response directly to because they're like my child is five or my child like I don't so we we're definitely having to have these gender conversations real time when we give out books that are um, uncomfortable for people who haven't had to have that uh, conversation and feel like their children are too young to have that conversation. Thank you Dr. Davis. Commissioner Duran. Thank you Madam Chair. Um, I'm just sitting here and very moved by the work that you do. I know that when you look at numbers and statistics, you're really thinking about the person behind those numbers and, and the, the dreadful experience and the trauma um, that they're experiencing. Um, and I know that safe housing is, is vital and, and really a great first step. In regards to um, some of, of the more uh, wraparound services prior, during, or after, and specifically speaking to not only the survivors, but the children and the youth um, that are experiencing this trauma, uh, what are some of the services that you all either direct or work with uh, to support their mental health during this process? 
I mean, we have this dream. Um, <laughs> I am blanking on the name right now. Maybe Director Davis can help me on this one. Um, I know that there's um, an effort to offer mental health services to the African-American community. Um, and we hope to do something similar for survivors that would be free. Um, yeah. So we're, we've been through um, some partnerships with the Department of Public Health, but we're building different ones. They're meant to be models. And so we'll do definitely with the Latino task force. We've been working with the American Indian Cultural District, as well as the Samoan Community Development Center. Um, the project that uh, Dr. Sai and Brittany Chiquata had been working on is called Free Minds. It's focused on telehealth support, but it also is about culturally affirming spaces. We're working right now um, We've been going back and forth with the Taraji P. Henson Foundation. She has a foundation called the Boris L. Henson Foundation, which has been doing what they call wellness pods on HBCU campuses. So they take containers and they convert them to spaces where people can come, um, whether it is to get away from tension that may be in their home or to come and get the support that they need or to talk to a therapist or to get yoga. Um, and so we're in the we're in negotiation with community members to launch these wellness pods as well as the free minds piece and then really trying to look at um, and a lot of the work that Dilse and Kelly Lou have been doing um, with the grants that they've been receiving is really trying to rethink how we talk about health and wellness. And I think ideally for us, what we're hoping is the work that we're doing through the Dreamkeeper initiative will inform a broader scope. But that is, we are being very intentional about how we think about health and wellness from culture, from community, from geography, um, from gender, that we can then say, okay, this is what we learned through this process. What does it look like to do this in another space or with another community or with another cultural perspective? So, And just to elevate again the work of our grantees and our members of our collective, they're the ones who are offering free mental health services. And so, um, for example, SF4 offers, I believe is 10 free sessions for survivors and five sessions for um, the significant other of a survivor. So that can be a family member, someone who lives in the same household or the person who um, the, the, the survivor disclosed to. So, you know, the numbers are high, but we also know that the numbers are not real. Um, most people don't report, right? So those numbers are actually a lot higher. Um, and so for organizations um, who are doing direct services to not only offer mental health services to the survivor, but the people supporting the survivor is a true reflection of how we need a network of support. Um, and the work that SHOP does, we know that we're just one arm of ending sexual violence. And it, it takes all of us, it takes the community, it takes the agencies, it takes you know everyone um, to do their part to be able to end sexual violence. And in the work that we do, um, in order to end sexual violence, we have to name the other types of oppressions that exist, right? That people are now just experiencing violence and domestic violence and sexual assault in silos. They're experiencing them because they are undocumented, because they are immigrants, because they are youth, because they are transgender or whatever other uh, marginalized identities they have. And so in supporting the work that these agencies have as grantees is key as part of the healing process for survivors. And SF War, SF Women Against Rape has a 
a list of mental health providers. I think it needs some updating if we're, but, um, but that is a place that we send people. And then also the trauma recovery center through SF general is um, offers uh, therapy sessions and counseling as well. I think they offer six. They offer six. The I know co-op does peer-to-peer. -peer. Oh, yeah. most, a lot, most of the organizations do peer-to-peer -peer support um, and support groups along with the 24-hour hotlines that they run. Commissioner Riley. Hi. Thank you for your presentation and, it's, uh, and your good work. It's so sad to hear about some of these uh, domestic violence uh, Dr. Davis had mentioned some of you reach out to different cultures and different communities. I'm wondering, do you do you get a lot of uh, report or requests for help from the Asian community? Um, we partner with uh, CYC. Um, they have a group that's called YEWAV. It's Young Asian Women Against Violence, and it's a um, gender-based violence prevention curriculum specifically for young girls and non-binary youth. Um, and they're they're doing amazing work. I I yeah, I really want to elevate their work because um it's again, it's age specific, it's gender specific, and it's uh, specific to their to their culture and the norms and the challenges that come up when when these conversations do or do not happen in specific communities. Um, so that's one example of 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 the work that's happening in communities. Yeah, I'm glad you're working with uh, nonprofit organizations because many of these um, uh, you know, many of these victims are monolingual, so for them to reach out to a government uh, agency, you know, is almost a uh, hardship for them. So I know that Gumboon is another one that works with, with uh, women, abuse women as well. So thank yeah, you. and we haven't done work with them directly, but as an opportunity, again, to elevate the work that happens in community, I know that Mujeres Unidas Activas, um, and Chinese Progressive Association um, do work specifically around domestic violence for um, domestic workers. So um, work that uh, violence that they experience as domestic workers um, within their work. And I know that like, I know that SF4 did a training with Mujeres Unidas Activas um, for them to have their own hotline in Spanish because of the type of violence that domestic workers were facing in the households that they um, were living and or working in. Do you have a hotline in uh, different Asian languages? Say that again. Do you have a hotline with like different Asian languages? So most organizations, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Asian Women Shelter would be like the, the one that is probably most culturally um, specific for API communities. Um, I will say that all the other domestic violence organizations um, have volunteers who run the hotline and the volunteers are also like identified based on the languages that they speak. And so if someone is not on the hotline in the moment they call, usually they get a call within 24 hours from that volunteer. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, <laughs> the bottom line is we live in a very violent society. All the media, the television shows, the literature, our history, it's all violent uh, based on warfare and every and the news headlines every day and men's uh, and women's sports uh, and the spectators, <laughs> you name it. Um, it's not just football or hockey, uh, it's 
uh, pervasive and um, it's a lot. It's overwhelming, really. It's overwhelming. So how do we bring peace and justice into our world? Uh, it absolutely starts at home, but what do we, what can we do really um, except to come together and to amplify uh, peaceful conflict resolution and uh, different sources of entertainment because we are living in a society where violence is uplifted and uh, it's prevalent. So I know I just said something that, you know, Dr. Sai and Dr. Davis were like, okay, what's she gonna do now? <laughs> Ending on a, the low note. <laughs> um, but I think that the high note is that we can, um, as long as we acknowledge what we're up against, we don't have to be like Sisyphus, you know, we don't have to feel that way. Although while we're pushing that boulder up the hill uh, and it keeps coming back on us, uh, we can be smiling and know that we're doing something, right? Um, to protect everyone because everyone, that's the other thing about it. It's, um, and that's also why sometimes people are quiet or silent even um, because it impacts everyone. So non-gender, non uh, non-binary, it's not gender specific. Uh, it's in all types of households. And it's because we're dealing with all of the external forces that, uh, glorify violence in our society and so we have to think about that right we have to think about that when we're at a sporting event or anything where they're glorifying militarization and war uh, and killing each other and fighting so that's what violence is and violence begets violence so as we think about peace and justice uh, Let's try to spread that in our, in our lives, in our homes, in our schools, and in our community. Um, I'm so grateful for the work that you do and, uh, and we support. And, um, and while it's challenging, uh, we encourage you and applaud you. So thank you, Kelly Lutensmore and Dulce Garcia. We appreciate you. So thank you. And we look forward to future uh, reports as well as invitations uh, for the commission to participate and amplify uh, this extremely important work. Thank please. you for having us. Of course. Please call the next item. Item six, National Disability Employment Awareness Month. Presentation by 
Director of a Mayor's Office on Disability on the importance of Disability Employment Awareness Month and the department's efforts to address inequities affecting persons with disabilities in San Francisco. Presentation by Nicole Bond, Director of Mayor's Office of Disability. This is a discussion and possible action item. There will be public comment. So we work here at the Human Rights Commission on uh, matters of equity, of access by all peoples to the rights of dignity and respect and equality. And to many San Franciscans, the barrier to access and equality begins at the door, at the curb, at the bus, or even the office floor. Um, the rights of people with disabilities to be employed equitably and have the guarantee of access taken for granted by so many of us who are temporarily abled. Um, it's an ongoing challenge and uh, it's faced by many and is the mission of the Mayor's Office on Disability. So we're very honored to be joined this evening by Nicole Bond, um, Director of the Mayor's Office on Disability to share her perspective on this month, recognizing disability employment awareness and um, I look forward to hearing how we can collaborate with Great. you. Good evening, commissioners. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hello, Director Davis. Good to see you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm very, very pleased to be here um, in recognition of Disability Employment Awareness Month, but, but also to really uh, talk about and highlight some of the things that the Mayor's Office on Disability has been working on that I, I really do hope that we can continue to uh, work on together. And so I'm going to be going over a little bit about what disability in San Francisco looks like, and then some of the issues that we hear from residents with disabilities and visitors with disabilities that are the most concerning right now, talk about some of the legislation and initiatives we've been working on and then we'll uh, get into that what I hope is a collaborative discussion. Uh, so the I'm gonna I'm gonna move over a little bit closer to my microphone. Okay, so what the mayor's office on disability does is we serve as the overall ADA coordinator, Americans with Disabilities Act coordinator. Uh, for San Francisco. And generally that means for us, we oversee uh, disability access for everything related to state and local government or anything funded or partially funded through the city. Title three, private sector disability access or disability discrimination complaints are addressed through our colleagues in the Human Rights Commission. So we have a very close and collaborative relationship uh, with your ADA coordinator in the Human Rights Commission, uh, Matthew Oglander is a fantastic person and does a great job. Uh, the Mayor's Office on Disability uh, serves as a liaison between the city and people with disabilities. We really try to bring together issues that are impacting the disability community. We serve as uh, staff to the Mayor's Disability Council. And then primarily we also serve as a resource and advisor for all city departments and the Board of Supervisors and the mayor regarding technical assistance regarding the best way to implement architectural and programmatic access, 
emergency planning and legislative impacts. Next slide, please. So what that looks like in San Francisco, this, uh, this infographic that is here is part of Disability and Aging Services, Disability in San Francisco infographic. There's much more information through the links. And I tried to provide links throughout this a presentation so you could do a deep dive of whatever you'd like to learn more about. We have right now between 88 and 94 residents, 94,000 residents who've identified as persons with disabilities. The graph on the right shows how that breaks down per the American Community Survey with people with mobility disabilities, uh, people who identify as having cognitive or intellectual disabilities, sensory disabilities, which are folks who are blind or who have low vision or who are deaf or hard of hearing, and then generally others who uh, need assistance that would identify as disabled. Almost half of the folks with disabilities in San Francisco are under the age of 65 and uh, very disproportionately impacted by poverty. One in four people with disabilities live in poverty, and even those who are employed are more than twice as likely to experience poverty. Next slide, please. 64% of residents in uh, San Francisco who identify as disabled are also people of color. For the Mayor's Office on Disability, racial and disability equity are interwoven. And from a disability justice perspective, what disability justice takes elements of disability status and socioeconomic status and race and say, you really need to be looking at all three of these things together from a justice perspective before people will be well served. And from our perspective in the Mayor's Office on Disability, race and disability should not be separated. Next slide, please. So I'm gonna highlight just very briefly uh, a lot, some of the federal and state and local legislation that the Mayor's Office on Disability has been uh, working on. One of our primary charges is to, first of all, address what we're hearing from people with disabilities as primary concerns. And then as legislation comes forward that specifically um, impacts people with disabilities, we do our best to help advise um, the Board of Supervisors, city departments, and others in how to implement legislation in an equitable way, and also that is responsive to the complaints and concerns that come forward from people with disabilities. So some of those local legislation that we've worked on in the past year and several years uh, are the Accessible Business Entrance Ordinance, which is an ordinance that uh, helps to ensure that businesses' front entrances are accessible. There are multiple uh, mayoral housing directives that we've been working on that impact disability access. Post-pandemic, uh, many of you, I'm sure, have been engaged with the JFK Promenade and Golden Gate Park conversation of, of uh, deep interest in the disability community in maintaining accessibility there. The Shared Spaces Legislative Program is our outdoor dining program where we are working to help businesses understand their accessibility obligations in that program and also help to develop a design manual and also 
uh, a PSA that helps um, keep uh, the sidewalks and the public right of way accessible for people with disabilities as well. Next slide, please. We uh, most recently, I am a member of the uh, steering committee that has helped to uh, oversee the affordable housing needs assessment that was um, part of the disability and aging um, services efforts, the affordable housing needs assessment specifically for people with disabilities and older adults, where we're a named partner. There are about 40 recommendations that came out of that report that now the steering committee is working on uh, implementation, largely in concordance with the housing element, but there are some things that are very specific to people with disabilities. And again, I've hyperlinked all of these. So if you'd like to look at the, these reports in more detail, they're all available here. We've also been engaged with electronic uh, scooter safety, very concerned. We know that people with disabilities and older adults in particular have been uh, severely injured by uh, electronic scooters. So we've been working with the Board of Supervisors on efforts related to that. And in, in a very timely uh, way, the accessible remote public comment, which is an uh, ever-changing and evolving um, effort. Uh, we've been involved in both collecting uh, community feedback and desire around maintaining access to public meetings and providing public comments in an accessible way, and also in advising on reasonable accommodation processes related to that. Next slide, please. And then uh, finally, there was legislation uh, in March as part of uh, Women's History Month that was uh, sponsored by uh, Supervisor Melgar that is honoring the late Judy Human, who was a primary driver, and thank you for mentioning, it's the 50th anniversary of the Rehab Act. Uh, most people forget about that, so thank you. And uh, these uh, photos are of protests that happened outside of, um, said in the federal building in 1977, four years after the Rehab Act was passed, when nothing was actually enacted yet. And so we now have, there are plans in the works to commemorate the site and the disability activism work that happened there because of the peaceful sit-ins that happened in 1977 in San Francisco. Next slide, please. And then we also are involved in the state uh, and federal level around uh, act, um, state and uh, federal advocacy. We've worked on uh, the accessible vote by mail legislation, continually working on commenting with the transportation network companies like Uber and Lyft around their obligations to maintain accessibility, which sometimes goes okay and sometimes not, frankly. Uh, we're, we're beholden to the California Public Utilities Commission on that and also with autonomous vehicles, trying to advocate for safety and also accessibility. Very important uh, now, especially, you know, uh, what's been in the news in the last week with the autonomous vehicles, I'm sure. And then we've uh, federally 
often will write public comment on behalf of persons with disabilities on specific uh, legislation that's in the works. Right now, the Air Carriers Accessibility Amendments Act is uh, pending. We, and, that, and we also um, ha had a, a recent and very successful national meeting with um, uh, Secretary Buttigieg from the Department of Transportation around uh, disability access in transportation and things that we can work on together there. Uh, uh, next slide, please. So I'm, I'm gonna briefly talk about uh, the complaints and trends, just so you can get a sense of what people contact the Mayor's Office on Disability about. About half of the requests that we get are complaints and concerns. Half of them are service requests and referrals to other agencies. Next slide, please. The biggest areas where we get Concern, uh, where we've had complaints and concerns, especially over the last year and, and particularly post-COVID, this really hasn't changed that much. Our, over half of our complaints are around access to the public right-of-way. So that's the sidewalk basically. And we will receive concerns in, uh, from wheelchair users, from people who are blind or low vision, from people who are older adults with other mobility devices really struggling to just get around San Francisco in a safe and accessible way. So we're really working on efforts to, um, to assist with that. We also, then the next category of complaints that we get are related to housing generally. And mostly in our, um, in our uh, permanent supported housing uh, and city, um, city-funded housing sites, really helping the operators there understand what their obligations are to provide reasonable accommodations to residents, to relocate residents if features are not working, there, the importance of uh, repairing elevators, et cetera. And then generally other architectural access barriers are the next category up, uh, needing to improve curb ramps, um, places in our park system that are not accessible and need improvements, et cetera. Next slide, please. And then, and so I've, I've talked about this, the architectural access, housing, the other things that we've received uh, complaints about that we're working on are citywide digital access, especially for folks who use assistive software, who have, uh, dexterity disabilities or who are blind or have low vision, are transportation and then communication access barriers, specifically for folks who are deaf or are hard of hearing. Next slide, please. One of the things that we've been working on in trying to help the city understand that when you're providing disability access, we're talking about compliance with the law, but what we're really talking about is trying to find ways to be more anti-ableist in all of our city programs. And so one of the things that MOD has done is we've developed a training module that we are, we right now we're rolling out by request, but I'd love it uh, for it to be a uh, citywide um, staff requirement. We're working on that. And that's, I'll talk a little bit about that in a, in a minute. The, 
our anti-ableism training really emphasizes what anti what ableism is first of all a lot of people don't know there's a lot of definitions about and a lot of thoughts about what the best definition of ableism is but uh, you know the easiest way that i think about it is it is <clears throat> a, it's social discrimination in favor of people who do not identify as disabled it, it's much more uh, layered than that but that's really what we're trying to help people understand that we are we are beyond disability access at this point. We're 50 years past the Rehab Act. We're 35 years past the ADA. We really need to be doing more to be thinking about all of the aspects that impact disability from a disability justice and anti-ableist perspective. In celebration of National Disability Employment Awareness Month, we we uh, the Mayor's Office of Disability has been working for quite some time to uh, work with the uh, Department of Human Resources to implement a way for employees to self-identify their disability status. And we're very glad to announce that this month we have rolled that out and employees are beginning to disclose and we're we're beginning to finally understand a little bit more. I don't have any uh, uh, data on that yet. We, the, uh, the Department of Human Resources just came to the Mayor's Disability Council on Friday and they don't have data for us yet on how it's going, but anecdotally, it seems uh, to have been well received so far. Uh, next slide, please. So as I kind of close up with the, the close out the formal part of the presentation, I just wanted to talk about some of the um, things that we might be able to do together or that you could take a look at in more of a, a deep dive. Uh, so really, um, as much as we can co-support disability community legislative impacts, that's one of the things Definitely, that I think the Human Rights Commission and the Mayor's Office on Disability could can work together with. We uh, we are right now um, in response to the uh, the Affordable Housing, Disability, and Aging Needs Assessment, really working on re uh, uh, reprioritizing our accessible our reasonable accommodation training module for city funded housing providers that's currently underway with HRC and others. Um, we've given a few public sessions so far and uh, the module and training has been really well received uh, so far. Um, really also looking for um, opportunities for citywide adoption, as I was mentioning earlier, of disability access and anti-ableism as a matter of equity. It's a principle that the Mayor's Office on Disability um, abides by, but we really are looking to uh, DHR and other city colleagues to help us include uh, employee and contractor training about anti-ableism and reasonable accommodations and other employment initiatives as part of a citywide requirement. Another thing that we could potentially do together is have 
a joint meeting between the Human Rights Commission and the Mayor's Disability Council. The Mayor's Disability Council is a council appointed by the mayor of all people. Uh, they're all people with disabilities or, or family members of kids with disabilities who are very engaged in uh, the disability uh, uh, movement in San Francisco. Uh, the council had a very uh, successful and I think eye-opening on both sides joint meeting this year with the, uh, with the uh, Disability and Aging Commission on some of the things that the MDC and the DAS Commission are, are working on in common. And that led to a member of the DAS Commission joining their housing access uh, subcommittee. And so um, it, it was just, it was a, it was a good uh, experience and we're going to continue the collaboration that I'd invite the same with the HRC. And then finally, we have um, some findings that you can look into, I'd be happy to talk more about related to the city's digital in accessibility and inclusion standard. This is a standard that we rolled out um, over, uh, it's been it's been up for about a year and it's requiring city departments to meet both digital accessibility for people with disabilities and language access in their website and digital designs. We're also part of disability, age and disability friendly San Francisco, which is again, another uh, effort that is um, led through disability and aging services, but uses the World Health Organization framework on eight different prongs from community engagement to outdoor spaces to health and well-being, et cetera, to really identify initiatives and actions that are impacting uh, persons with disabilities. Just as an example, some of the things that they're working on this year are an uh, end ableism campaign, um, a very concerted effort to um, uh, increase representation of people with disabilities on councils and commissions and, and older adults as well. And then finally implement the uh, findings within the Empowered San Francisco Technology Needs Assessment, which is a picture here and also hyperlinked. This uh, technology needs assessment we, um, we did during COVID uh, when we knew that we um, we're going to, <clears throat> when we knew that people with disabilities and older adults in, partic in particular had difficulty with access to or no access to digital content, we repurposed um, some funding that was uh, granted through one of our uh, city nonprofits to do a needs assessment that, will, that brings recommendations around what we need to do to achieve digital equity for people with disabilities in San Francisco. And so the, the uh, age and disability friendly San Francisco effort is working on that implementation as well. And I think that's my last slide before I can turn my attention away from the screen and, and back to you all where it, it should be. Okay, so, and then this is my contact information. I'm happy to uh, answer any uh, questions. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Director Bond. It's always an honor and pleasure to have you join us. We appreciate it. And now we will open public comment. Are there any members of the public attending in person who would like to comment on this item? People attending in person are invited to make public comment. Public comment is up to two minutes. Please state your name if you would like it for the public record. Chair, I see members of the public attending in person who would like to make comment on this item. Are there any members of the public who would like to provide testimony remotely? Please use the raised hand icon. People attending remotely are invited to make public comment. Public comment is up to two minutes. Chair, I see no persons of the public attending remotely who wish to make comment on this item. Seeing none, public testimony is now closed for this item. Commissioners, do you have any questions or uh, thoughts for Director Bond? Vice Chair Shaw? Thank you, Chair, and thank you, Director Bond, for your thorough presentation. Um, I, I did have a question um, as you were presenting um, about um, all the wonderful work and the statistics. Thank you so much. Some of them were quite alarming. Mm -hmm. Um, that you presented uh, with persons with disability. But does the Mayor's Disability Council, do you offer support groups for teens with disabilities? So that's, I would say that that service of youth mm -hmm. with disabilities is one of the places where we need to do some continued work. Okay. We were able to have a, uh, we've done some work with summer programming in collaboration with Department of Children, Youth, and Families, and uh, where, um, at least in summer programming, we've been able to now train um, pro uh, camp providers. We've trained over 100 camp providers, and we it used to be in the summertime that there would be camps for disabled kids and camps for other kids. Mm -hmm. And and now we have a much more integrated system for kids. One of the findings of the digital technology needs assessment is that transitional aged youth in particular is one of the areas where they have the most struggles maintaining or having access to the technology that they need to kickstart into employment. And part of that reason we think is that especially people with disabilities who are going through the K-12 system and then they graduate from the system, all of the accommodation and support that they were using in the K-12 system stays in the K-12 system. Mm -hmm. So then they move out of that and they really lose all of that support that they're used to almost immediately unless their high school is very directly working with the Department of Rehabilitation and others. So that is definitely an area where um, as a city, if there's interest and initiative there, I know that there's definitely need. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for that information. Commissioner Emron, 
thank you. Thank you, Director, uh, for, for your presentation. I really like uh, this slide with the priorities and opportunities for collaboration. And I know this commission is going to look look into continuing uh, further collaboration with your, your office as well. This is an issue that's very near and dear to my heart because my own father, he suffers from Parkinson's disease. So mm -hmm. he has his own disability. He's confined to a walker. And when he comes visits me in San Francisco, we have the issues of the public right-of-way access where the sidewalk's either blocked by a car or, or some other type of issue that's blocking the sidewalk. So it may be easier for me to maneuver around, but for him, he has his, his, his mobility issues. So can you uh, explain some of the short and long-term solutions the city's looking at in, in uh, improving right-of-way access for, for those with disabilities? Yeah, that's a... Do you have another half hour? <laughs> there's a lot happening. There's a lot of just teasing. There's a, there's a lot happening. So um, I think, first of all, one of the things that we're, we're really trying to do immediately, and there have been some um, complications related to the, uh, the citywide injunction that we've had that have made it difficult to move um, people in encampments in certain situations. But in terms of in terms of really getting at that public right-of-way access, we've really been working with 311 to help make it easier to report when there is a, a blockage or a violation. We've been working very specifically with the organizations that are on the street uh, Urban Alchemy, the Heart Team, the uh, the folks uh, that are working through uh, Department of Emergency Management to uh, prioritize access, especially when it comes in through um, a complaint or concern. But we also know that you shouldn't need to complain before something is is accessible. It should just be that way. We work very specifically also with the uh, field inspectors in Public Works Bureau of Streets and Mapping to make sure as they're doing their, um, their work that they are uh, diligent about maintaining access in the right-of-way wherever they can as well. And then also to that issue of um, cars blocking the sidewalk because they're parked in the driveway. I mean, that's a vehicle violation, right? And so we really do need, um, we when we hear about those, we refer them to um, the folks uh, in SFMTA that deal with parking and traffic violation. And then, and then also uh, we work with the police department in really extreme cases. So it's really, the public right-of-way is really an effort that is involves multiple departments and, um, and it, it needs a lot of attention and it's it's continually uh, evolving. I would say though, those are the, those are kind of the the ways that we kind of try to keep it clear. I would say also I know that San Francisco has um, some of the what I think are some of the best standards for when we're doing streets work and when we're doing repairs, we have a very robust process that when we're designing streets or we're repairing streets, we're also um, repairing 
curb ramps, tactile domes, um, um, the uh, safety signals that help, that help folks cross the street. There's a lot that we're doing in San Francisco that other cities in California in particular look to us as really the model and the gold standard. Um, we go above and beyond the federal and the state regulations around how we approach the accessibility of our right-of-way, specifically around curb ramp access. So we are very proud of that, but we need all of the, the all of the city and all of the all of the members of the public working together to help us understand where there's when there, where there are significant problems that we need to resolve. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. And I'm sure it's because of your leadership that we're way beyond the curve. So thank you again for all your work. Thank you very much. Thank you for the compliment. Thank you again for being here and giving us this time. And I've taken this out <laughs> so that we can follow up Great. On, on the different um, aspects potential collaboration. That would be wonderful. So we can put things on, get th things on calendar for, for next year. Great. Um, and Mr. Secretary, if you could please call the next item. Item seven, commissioner activities in the community. Commissioner report on events in the community they have attended or wish to notify the commission of in advance. This is a discussion item. There will be public comment. Commissioners, do you have any events that you attended or uh, would like us to amplify that you plan to attend in, in the community? Commissioner Duran. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead is right around the corner and uh, it's really a uh, celebration of life um, and, and remembrance and honoring all those that have, that have passed. Uh, those of us that, that are still present, their names and their memories stay with us. And so specifically in, in Mexico, uh, where my parents are from, uh, we, we take our time to, to honor them and their memories in a joyful way because they left that much joy and had a great impact in our lives and it's because of them that we're here and i uh, i welcome you all to join us in in the mission district there's a, an array of uh celebrations happening throughout the district but also um with carnival we're partnering with the uh california academy of sciences so uh they're having a nightlife event in, in, in partnership with Carnival and, and the Mission Cultural Center. And it'll be the very first. And I welcome all the commission to join us in this wonderful celebration. That will be on Thursday, November 2nd from six to 10. At the Academy? Correct. Anyone else? Uh, yes, thank you, uh, Madam Chappie. Very, very brief. So October is, is Pitbull Awareness Month as well. And we're celebrating celebrating these very unique dogs, but also beating back the stigmas that come with them as well. 
So the San Francisco S SPCA Adoption Center is hosting uh, through October 31st a free adoption for pit bulls, puppies, pit bull puppies, and mixed pit bulls at their mission campus, 250 Florida Street. And I hope uh, you can continue to spread awareness. And, and uh, they're really beautiful dogs, really such sweet dogs, too. Thank you. Commissioner Riley. September and October has been a very busy month. Many of the organizations are having their fundraiser and, and celebrations. So I attended the Overseas Chinese uh, Celebration. Um, they awarded and recognized five outstanding Chinese Americans. And these five uh, individuals had done a lot and contributed a lot to the community. And um, attended the Happy Free Gala. It's a nonprofit organization. They raise funds and they raise uh, awareness for this uh, happy, happiness be uh, disease. And um, Fiona Ma is one of the uh, members of this organization. And I attended the Dreamkeeper Initiative Community Update Meeting. Uh, they highlight on the, uh, the uh, violence, uh, domestic violence as well. And attended the Stand Together SF meeting at the uh, main library in prepare for the San Francisco Stand Together Against Hate. We had a healing session led by uh, Dr. Davis and Dr. Cyrus, and it was a good meeting. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Riley, and th thank you for attending uh, all of those events uh, and convenings. We really appreciate you. Commissioner Johnson. I, I attended the um, 10th anniversary of the Lesbians Who Tech conference, which was held in the Castro uh, this past week. Uh, had a chance to hear from various entrepreneurs, tech leaders um, in the community and hearing the impact that the community is having. It was a quite inspiring um, conference and seeing such great turnout for, again, the 10th anniversary of that celebration. I was very honored to, to participate in the 50th anniversary of MELA and uh, really celebrate the contributions to uh, housing and uh, entrepreneurship and self-determination that really they exemplify and have done for for the last 50 years in the uh, Latine community. And uh, everyone was of course very welcoming and it was very festive and uh, wonderful. And my dear friend, Maria Antonetta Mejia uh, was the MC uh, who is on channel 14 news and Emmy award winning. Um, so it was, uh, a wonderful evening. So I wanted to uplift them. And uh, we've been grappling with uh, public meeting issues uh, over the last bit, probably 
two months. And um, this week, I want to draw people's attention to an announcement made by the mayor's office, which I think everyone has received, but you might check your emails to make sure you review it. And it's about um, that the Board of Supervisors has decided not to allow for remote public comment. And so um, we'll be taking that up at our next meeting, but I just wanted to cue it up to let you know that we have been in conversation and that is part of the activities that <laughs> we've been engaged in. Uh, certainly over the last few days, but um, it's come to a head this week because of the, the Board of Supervisors and the mayor's uh, edict about this, which is to eliminate the possibility. So um, whether we do that or we modify or how we, we address it will be up to the commission. Um, but the mayor's office and the board of supervisors has eliminated that. And uh, with that, I will open up to public comment on this last item. Members of the public attending in person are welcome to make public comment. Public comment is two minutes. Chair, I see no members of the public attending in person who wish to make comment on this item. And are there any members of the public who would like to testify remotely? People attending remotely are invited to make public comment. Public comment is up to two minutes. Chair, I see no members of the public attending remotely who wish to make comment on this item. Seeing none, public testimony is now closed for this item and for the evening. Item eight, adjournment. I want to thank the members of the public and the commissioners for participating in the October 26, 2023 convening of the San Francisco Human Rights Commission. Our next meeting is scheduled for Thursday, November the 9th. Uh, we only have two more meetings this year, we, November the 9th and December the 14th, I believe. Is that correct? I don't have the date memorized. Okay, I know November 9th is correct. All right. Uh, is there a motion to adjourn? So moved. Is there a second? Second. Oh. No objections by acclamation. This meeting is adjourned. I don't know. They took it away. The